0: From Miami Law, I'm Annette Ugez, and this is The Explainer.
1: Great educational benefits of the, the clinic for law students is they get to read these letters and sort of taking ownership over the cases and start making decisions. Some of the cases are really easy. Yeah, this is not an innocence case. We're not going to handle it. Some of them are a little bit more difficult, and some of them are easy on the 180-degree case, which was the case with, with Mr. Doody's case. And I remember uh, the student uh, at char- in charge of reading mail that week essentially walked into my office with his letter and said, we got to represent this guy.
0: Welcome back to Season 7 of the Miami Law Explainer. The legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Last month, Miami Law's Innocence Clinic Director Craig Trocino secured the release of his wrongfully convicted client after serving eight years of a 20-year sentence. Today on our show, Trocino will peel back the difficult process. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview.
2: Good morning, Craig. Nice to have you back. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. So first, I want to congratulate you and your students for, on the hard-fought win. Um, what did that me- moment feel like you when he finally walked into freedom, and what did it feel like for Dustin Duty?
1: Well, first off, thank you very much for the congratulations. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, the students do as well. Um, it was a long, difficult fight for over five years of direct litigation in multiple courts, uh, but we finally prevailed. Um, and the, the minute standing out, these the, nothing. I'll put it this way. Nothing's easy in these cases, right? It took us five years to convince the court of what everybody who looks at it now thinks is really obvious. Um, and then on the day we got Dustin out, the state had um, filed its notice of dismissal at 830 in the morning. It was six o'clock p.m. By the time we were able to walk him out of the jail because of all this person needs that document and the clerk needs this and the jail needs that and nobody's communicating. And so we were on the phone essentially all day trying to get him out. And so being at the jail, waiting for him to walk out, we, we were sort all on pins and needles. And the minute that the door opened and he walked out and I gave him a big hug and everybody was clapping and, you know, there was TV cameras there. It was just really uh, a quite incredible moment.
2: Great. And and did he talk about kind of what that moment felt like, like seeing you, seeing your students, like breathing clear air with nothing between him and the real world?
1: Uh, yeah, he was really quite overwhelmed at first. Um, and when some of the reporters from the TV stations in Jacksonville that were there asking questions, he would say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very nervous about this. I'm just I'm just very thankful and uh, thankful for my legal team and thankful to be to be out. And, and you know, I just I knew that he said if he knew that because he had you know faith that this would happen, uh, that it would eventually happen.
2: Oh. Um, well, I know you've told us before that it's a lot harder, in fact, nearly impossible to get a conviction overturned. Is part of that because the stakeholders like the judge, the prosecutor, the police have their reputations? kind of on the line?
1: Well, I think that's, I think it's part, it's a multifaceted question, but I think that's definitely part of it. Um, the, the trial judge that presided over this part of Dustin's case was not the same trial judge. So that particular judge didn't have a stake in it, but the problem arose when, uh, the defense lawyer, uh, who was essentially the, the main culprit of what happened to Mr. Just, Mr. Duty here, uh, would not realize and admit that he made mistakes to the point where, um, you know, the state called him as a witness to justify his actions, which if you read the opinion are unjustifiable. Um, and I cross-examined him for approximately two and a half hours in which every t- at every chance he attempted to justify his point of view, um, painted himself into a couple of quarters, if I might say so, uh, that the First District Court of Appeal rapidly recognized Um, but, you know, two things, you know, should have happened in this case and none of this would have happened to Mr. Duty. I mean, defense, well, really defense counsel should have done its job and somebody at the police office, a police station, mainly the detective who, who interrogated him should have done what he said he was going to do and call Mr. Duty's boss and cleared the whole thing up. If those two things happen, Mr. Duty doesn't waste eight years in a, in a cage for something he didn't do.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. And what do you think the reason for them? I mean, when a case gets overturned like this, does that kind of domino effect, like everything that detective put his hands on before, like calls, you know, does that open the door to a a lot of other, like second guessing?
1: Uh, I wish it did, but no. Um, uh, No, I mean, there's, uh, I think Dustin was officially the 2000th eight hundred and eighty seventh exoneree nationwide since 1989 in very very few cases are the people responsible for those wrongful convictions held accountable um there were a couple of cases a couple of situations in chicago where a particular detectives group was involved in a, a half a dozen or more wrongful murder convictions uh things came down on them but not nearly to what you would to the degree you would think, expect, or hope, in order to rectify the problems that we know happen in the criminal justice system, or mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I misspoke. I, I, I've been referring to it lately as the criminal legal system, uh, because justice seems to be difficult to to uh, access in this criminal legal system. For instance, um, after Mr. Duty was was released and exonerated, he reminded me. Uh, of how he ended up writing to us. And he ended up writing to us because he was in prison, excuse me, uh, with another gentleman who I was also representing. And they were talking. And this man said, you should write the folks in Miami. They're helping me. So that's how Mr. Duty ended up writing to us. That gentleman's case is every bit as good and strong on the merits as Dustin's case. And it went to the First District Court of Appeal, and they affirmed without opinion at all. And I had to have the conversation with him that we lost, and after trying federal court and losing, uh, again, that uh, unfortunately there was no further way to go, and he was going to have to spend the rest of his life without the possibility of parole in prison. But Dustin was able to access justice in this. So if you ask me what's the difference between the two cases, I don't have an answer for you, because Mm -hmm. in my view, um, they are equally meritorious. In the other case, the defense lawyer at the evidentiary hearing said about twelve or thirteen different times, "Yeah, I blew that. I made that mistake. I was in quote I was ineffective." Didn't matter. I cross-examined Dustin Duties later for two and a half an hours, and you'd think he was uh, he was proclaiming he was Clarence Darrow. He's not. And I get relief for Mr. Duty. Uh-huh. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't square that circle
2: time the right time the right place the right judge um a little bit of luck don't hurt yeah exactly um so you talked a little about uh, about the process and i imagine it is very hard for an inmate to convince outside counsel to take a a, a look at their quest for innocence and that the resources are are very scant nationwide so what are those numbers like and how do you decide who to take? and and who you can't help
1: well we get the way cases come to us in our clinic is we get letters by the people involved by the inmates involved and we get to this day still approximately 15 or so letters a week week in week out for people asking for help one of the great educational benefits of the the clinic for law students is they get to read these letters and sort of taking ownership over the cases and start making decisions some of the cases are really easy, yet yeah, this is not an innocence case, we're not going to handle it. Some of them are a little bit more difficult, and some of them are easy on the 180-degree case, which is, was the case with, with Mr. Doody's case. And I remember uh, the student uh, at char- in charge of reading mail that week essentially walked into my office with his letter and said, we got to represent this guy. Um And took a look at it. And that was, you know, it was it was, you know, full tilt uh, since then because we had a short time period. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, sometimes you have a short time fuse and sometimes you don't. But we from that from the minute we got his letter, we have been litigating his case for five years until he walked out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so is this
2: kind of like President Barack Obama's three letters a night that he reads from, that, that his staff like calls from the millions <laughs> of letters he does?
1: Uh, no, because we don't call them. We read everyone that comes in. Right. Because right, right. we get 15. Uh, in fact, if, if, you know, if this were on, on video, I could I could take I could take a camera and show you the several bankers boxes worth of letters that we've received, that we've processed. And that, you know, uh, and that's just over the, the summer and up until now. Um, uh so the numbers I the the numbers are, are staggering and most innocence efforts across the country and well it's an international effort so across the world, I presume get the same amount uh, of uh, of inquiries. Now the the average you know lawyer who's not dedicated to doing the work that the innocence community does might get a letter and go oh yeah, this guy's just you know he's full of it everybody says they're innocence, but we're tuned to that. So mm-hmm. we get the we're, we get the letter. We're looking for that. Uh, so it's 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 not about convincing us. It's about do you meet the criteria? Uh, so if if inmates are writing to somebody who's in the innocence community, doing this type of work, um, it's not tar- it's not terribly hard to convince them to to look further into the case. Uh, but historically, uh, that is a difficulty of of defendants uh, and inmates. Uh, and unfortunately, even at trial, when they're saying, I didn't do this, uh, like Mr. Duty was saying, I didn't do this. I was working with my boss. Please call him. He will tell you. Um, and lawyers, you know, some lawyers in this particular lawyer didn't even believe that. In fact, mm-hmm. so much so that the victim of this particular crime that Mr. Duty was falsely convicted of testified for us at the evidentiary hearing. And she said that at the deposition that his defense lawyer gave, she walks in and he says something to the effect of her, well, this isn't going to take very long. We all know this is an open and shut case. And she was, she was offended by that. Uh-huh. And she's the one who got hurt. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 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 So, you know, I mean, I think if there's a lesson in any of this to be learned uh, and, and the, this, the opinion from the first ECA lays out a nice little uh, roadmap for it is that, you know, the defense lawyers, it's easy to get jaded because I've, I've done it. I understand that. But, you know, the second you get jaded is the second you have a dust and duty fall through your fingertips and he goes to prison for eight years for something he didn't do, potentially 20 years for something he didn't do. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But for the grace of of God and luck that he actually was incarcerated with somebody who I was representing and he wrote me because that guy told him to, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of serendipity that happened in this case.
2: Exactly. Um, So what's next for you and your band of committed almost lawyers?
1: (laughs) Um, More of the same. Uh, We've got several cases, uh, a couple in Palm Beach County that are are once going to head to an evidentiary hearing. Um, We're appealing a denial here in in Miami-Dade County. So we'll be filing the brief shortly in the Third District Court of Appeal. Um, Another one, uh, again, in Palm Beach County and then another one in Broward County. That's an old uh, DNA case, thirty-year-old murder that looks promising too. So, and those all probably heat up in the next uh, four or five months. So, it's it's we we have a a brief window to uh, celebrate and uh, and be happy for Dustin Duty, but then after that's over, we got to get back to doing the business, uh, the work that we're doing, Uh, and that hard work. The hard work that got Dustin out is the hard work we have to continue to do and return to.
2: I don't want to let you go without getting your take on the nearly all-white juries in the Kyle Rittenhouse and Almond Arbery cases. Arbery, one black man, and Rittenhouse with one juror identified as a person of color.
1: Yeah. You know, jury selection is a fascinating look into the criminal justice system. And it also peels back a layer of, of systemic historical racial inequality and racism. Uh, when you pick a jury you every side has a certain amount of what they call peremptory challenges. You could strike that jury for whatever reason, except you cannot strike a person based on race or gender. right So when that happens, the other side gets to object and says judge, they're st- they're striking that person because they're African American and which which prompts that person to have to give a race neutral reason. Well, that race neutral reason is pretty much nothing. Um, There's a a, a United States Supreme Court case that said the race neutral reason was because he had he had unkept hair. Um, And now it's well, they said they don't trust police or they've had encounters with police. Well, that's, you know, I mean that and that's a reason to exclude an African-American from the jury. And it's hogwash. Because nothing in there says that that because they had a an re- interaction with the police that they can't follow the judge's law and be fair, but those 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 folks are routinely and systematically and in some cases you can actually watch the pattern unfold excluded from a jury and 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 that's probably likely what happened and, and depending on who you're representing and the circumstances I would imagine that the the prosecution in in written in the written house case was not striking African-Americans. I would imagine Mm -hmm. that that was, those strikes were coming from the defense. Uh, But it doesn't matter which point of view you're taking to, Mm -hmm. to use uh, a subtleness in the law to systematically exclude one population from uh, it's uh, uh, serving a a, a social good and sitting on a jury is, is is an affront and an offense to me.
2: Mm. Well, thank you for that insight. And thanks for joining us as always. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. We'll see you next season. Okay. Take care. Bye now.
0: Bye. We hope you've enjoyed this season of The Explainer. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. We look forward to bringing Season 8 when we return in January. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi, with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Ugez. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's Practice Concentrations, including the business of innovation, law, and technology. For more information, visit law.miami.edu forward slash concentrations.